Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Good Life Podcast with Mike Safosnik. Coming to you live from the great Jack Dempsey's, located at 36 West 33rd Street, around the corner from the Empire State Building. Thanks again, everyone who has listened, will listen, has subscribed to the show. Find it on any podcast platform, iTunes, whatever, by just searching Mike Safo, M-I-K-E-S-A-F-O. Uh, the past couple of months, besides athletes, comedians, surfers, whatever, I've had a bunch of authors on. So I'm going to keep up with that uh, trend today. And like so many others, I have this thirst and obsession for the knowledge of the criminal underworld, specific, uh, specifically the mafia, I guess the New York mob. So let me introduce today's guest. I hope we can call him an expert in the field. Mm. From the New York Daily News, author of the outstanding book, The Chin, which we're going to get to, welcome to the show, Larry McShane. Larry, thank you, man. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Venturing all the way from New Jersey to come on. <laughs> now, Larry, before we get to your book, how did you get involved in not only covering the mob or the mafia, but a fascination enough to write a book about it? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the quick and short version is I was working in December 1985 on the night when Paul Castellano was murdered outside oh. Spark Steakhouse. Wow. I was working a night shift, and I got sent over from the office. I was working for Associated Press. We were right in Rockefeller Center, so we were about six blocks away. And uh, I shot out of the office and ran over uh, to the steakhouse, and you know, it, it looked like a movie set, except of course it was real, you know, and there were just police all over and the FBI was there and, uh, you know, it turned out to be this huge story too, you know, John Gotti ordered this execution so that he could rise to the top of the Gambino family. And uh, I, I guess that more than anything, I mean, I'd seen movies growing up when I was a kid and that sort of thing, but that being at that crime scene more than anything really kind of hooked me into organized crime. Back to Spark Steakhouse, I never knew that. Did you know the severity of it or the maybe historical significance when you got there? Like, this is big. Oh, yeah. We, I think we got a tip from our guy at the courthouse that there had been, uh, Castellano was about to go on trial for racketeering and the, the word started to get around the courthouse in lower Manhattan. And so we had a pretty good idea of what was going on. I, it wasn't what I expected when I got there, you know, the, the town car in the middle of the street, in front of a no parking sign, and the two bodies on either side. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was blood everywhere. But, yeah, I, I knew when I was, like I said, that was back in the days when I could run somewhere. And I, <laughs> I ran over to, to get there. It was, it was really a, a night that I won't forget of all the things I've covered. Now, getting to your book, we've talked about this off air. I remember growing up and seeing the newspaper, and you'd see a little, I guess, paparazzi picture, and it was like the grainy black and white, and you'd see a old, disheveled man in the village, which right. to everyone in the world, Greenwich Village, the village, Lower East Side, it's, it's special, it's different. And you would see this old guy, and you would see the caption, The Odd Father. And then I'd read the little blurb, it's like, uh, head of the mafia, I'm like, no, this, this can't yeah. be real, look at this guy. And then back then, like we said, there was no internet, you couldn't Google, Wikipedia, right. search him. So when I saw your book came out, uh, The Chin, The Life and Crimes of Vinging Giganti, Giganti right. I was beyond stoked. So tell everyone listening, who is The Chin? Uh, Vincent Giganti became the uh, head of the Genovese crime family uh, at a certain point in the 80s, even though John Gotti received most of the headlines and the attention. He was probably the most powerful mob boss in the country. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, two things. One, he didn't want... The headlines and the attention, uh, that was not his modus operandi. His whole thing was to stay under the radar. Uh, and he did this mostly by pretending for more than two decades that he was mentally ill. Now, because here's the thing, and I, I make like little notes to write to you. You mentioned John Gotti. 
Him and John Gotti weren't really buddies, were they? No, he was, uh, he was actually friendly with Castellano. They were peers. You know, they were head of the two biggest and most powerful crime families in the city. And so when Gotti arranged for the murder of, of uh, Paul Castellano, this was kind of stepping on the chin's toes. And uh, at some point in the ensuing years before, Giganti, excuse me, before Gotti went away, Giganti actually put a contract out on, on John Gotti. And he killed uh, Gotti's driver and Gotti's underboss, um, little Al Darko, who was a cooperating witness um, from the Lucchese family, said that the other murders were done specifically to give Gotti the feeling that somebody was, like, tightening a noose around his neck and he'd be next. Now, we have to get the one generic question out of the way. Yeah. Why was he nicknamed the Chin? Uh, it, it's from his mother. I mean, he was a boxer. I, I thought it would be from, from his career as a boxer. Uh, he also had a pretty prominent Chin mm-hmm. But uh, his mother would call him Vincenzino. And so when she would yell out in the village for him to come in, she'd be like, Vincenzino. And so the other kids just started calling him Chin. And it stuck with him, you know, all the way through uh, two federal trials and a trip to the federal penitentiary. It it was cool because in the book you described that you were never allowed to mention his name with penalty of? Penalty of death. Um, And guys, I mean, I talked to people in the FBI and, and federal prosecutors and people within organized crime, and they all said... You know, it sounds kind of funny and melodramatic, but uh, it was not a joke within the world of organized crime. Uh, there was a story, I think, that's in the book about a guy who came running out of his uh, apartment <laughs> wearing a bathrobe. and uh, To meet a girl. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, then he started freaking out that if people saw him in the bathrobe, they'd think he was trying to take Gigante's bit away from him, <laughs> the crazy bit. So, yeah, it was taken... It sounds funny, I know, but it was taken very seriously. Now, he, he grew up in the village where he stayed his whole life. He was a legit boxer, fought in MSG and stuff. Yeah. How did he get involved in the whole organized crime thing? Because obviously there's two ways to go. And Right. Well, and his brother, Father Louis Gigante, became a priest. Yeah, uh, which I'm going to get to because I yeah, found your interview with him crazy. Uh, it, was, it was great. It was very nice of him to do it. Um, but, yeah, I think he... You know, he just kind of fell into organized crime. Uh, the village back then was really heavily Italian immigrants. Uh, his family was. His, his mother and father came over, went through Ellis Island. And uh, he wasn't a good student. You know, he didn't finish high school. And I think he just found a home in the streets. You know, even boxing at that time was heavily, heavily uh, run by organized crime. Blinky Palermo and Frankie Carbo. Uh, and I think he just kind of fell into it. It was there. It was a way to make money. And, uh, you know, by all accounts, Vito Genovese, who was kind of the padron of Greenwich Village at that time, took a liking to him. Well, Vito took him under his wing. Is that yes, what? Yes, exactly okay. right. And uh, so, you know, he had a good connection early on. He had a, a rabbi, for less of a better term, uh, who was looking out for him and who kind of showed him the ropes. Now, he seemed, and maybe I'm wrong with this, like kind of low level at the time. And I wrote down here, he was like assigned to assassinate. Frank Costello, who was the boss at that time of the Genovese family, yeah. that's like a big job to give to a kind of a low-level guy, was or was he not as low-level as well, I thought I think he was? Well, I think by that point, he had kind of worked his way up. Um, it's funny, even FBI documents that I was able to get through uh, FOIL requests are kind of sketchy about exactly what, what he was doing, but they identify him as a hitman for, for Vito Genovese. So my belief is probably based on what I've seen in those documents that he had done this before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Vito Genovese orchestrated the whole thing. And so you go with somebody you know, right? And uh, so he went with the chin. And, and, of course, it became... But the chin failed. Yeah, it became the most famously bungled hit in mafia history. <laughs> uh, 
and supposedly because before he walks into Costello's luxury apartment up on Central Park West, and uh, as he points the gun at him, Costello's not looking, and he says, this one's for you. <laughs> and Costello turns, and therefore the bullet grazes him on the side of the head rather than going through the head. If he doesn't say a word, probably executes him. Sounds like it, yeah. That, uh, yeah, better off. And keep the, your mouth shut, I guess, yeah. <laughs> so anytime, if we're going to do a hit together, we'll keep our mouth yes, shut. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I found fascinating later on in the book is that they actually met again. Like they were not friends. They were at a dinner party together. Together, yeah. like, hey, you, even though you tried to kill me, hey, we understand it's well, business. Well, I mean, just to show that, that it's business, I mean, I don't think there's any question that Costello knew who tried to kill him. You know, when he turned, he was looking right at the guy that shot at him. And yet Costello very famously, you know, refused when Giganti got arrested to identify him in a lineup. And then he was called to testify at Giganti's uh, trial for attempted murder, and he refused to identify him from the witness stand. So, I mean, that's that's the old school mob. Mm -hmm. That's not, you know, what you see now where there's dozens of informants and guys flip and cut deals and this and that. And that's also the, the, the mob that Giganti grew up in. And when he was arrested in 1997 on racketeering uh, charges, and again when he was tried in 2003 on different charges, uh, he went into court, you know, rolled the dice, never said a word about anybody, pretended to be Great. mentally ill mm -hmm. during the entire trial, and, uh, and did his time quietly. Well, let's get to this, because he, he was climbing the ranks yeah. in the family, and where did this crazy act start, and where did he get it from? Because it's pretty fascinating that he started off this like what 30 years doing this whole fake yeah. crazy act and it, it worked because he was in I want to hear how it started and how many times in and out of psychiatric places did he get did yeah. he go I'll do the second one first he was in and out of a psychiatric facility in Westchester County close to 30 times um, it became kind of a, a in joke among the, the mafiosi that uh, they would refer to it as his annual tune up <laughs> you know so he'd go up there um, and it was all self admission so he could check in when he wanted and check out when he wanted. But by doing this every year, he built up this enormous resume that, you know, he has real uh, mental file. health problems. Yeah. Uh, and so if, if you were going to try and take him to trial, that's the defense. Now, where it came from, as best I could determine, uh, as sort of payback for the missed Costello hit, uh, there was supposedly a rigged drug trial. He always claimed it was rigged anyway. I'm sounding like Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And he was convicted of, of drug charges. Like I said, he denied it always. And he went to jail. And this was all set up by Costello. So uh, when he came out of jail, his father had died while he was in jail. And, uh, you know, he's kind of depressed. He's back in the village. You know, he's an ex-con. His, his father has died while he's in jail. And uh, he was supposed to see his parole officer. And he told his attorney, like, look, I'm just kind of too depressed to... Uh, and the uh, parole officer was like, okay. And it seems like from that small thing, like a light bulb went off. Like if the parole officer believed this. Yeah, maybe it had worked somewhere else. And he managed to avoid, he was summoned to testify at some grand juries. And, and he said that he was too depressed, you know, he was mentally unwell. And he was allowed out of that. And so it kind of snowballed until uh, the case in 1970 where he was tried for uh, bribing the entire old Japan, New Jersey police force. <laughs> And that's kind of where, like, I guess the public would have learned at first. Although it's funny, like you say, now it would be all over the Internet. Back then it was covered mostly in the Bergen record. You know what I mean? But my one thing with uh, going in and out of these places, 
these doctors or whoever, they deemed him unfit for trial on a few of them. How did that work? Was he that good of an actor or? Well, yeah. Um, by the time, by the time he was, well, look, 1990 is when he's, uh, he's indicted. Mm-hmm. So that's when he sits down with, uh, with these psychiatrists who are actually going to judge his sanity. So he got out of prison in 65. That's 25 years of working on the act. And, uh, you know, he did this everywhere. If he went to the dentist, you know, he played a crazy guy at the dentist. Um, you know, his daughter described how he would, you know, almost like Brando or Pacino, get into character before he would leave the house. And, you know, he had a wardrobe. He had the old floppy hat, and he had the slippers, and the ratty pants, and the bathrobe. So I, I think really to some degree it became a character that he played, and he just got really, really good at playing that character. I love the one story you told in the book, The Chin, Life and Crimes of Vin Giganti, is they, the feds came to his house, and they go in, they walk in, he's naked in the shower with an umbrella. Yeah. So did some of the people, because I think, maybe I'm wrong, I think some of the feds or stuff did believe it, because they were like, this guy really is crazy, it, or no one really believed it. Well, it's funny, I think by the end, there was some thought that... Um, 25 years is a long, yeah. that's a long gig to go with. Well, there was some thought that as he got older, that maybe the act had become reality. As he, be, as he became older, maybe he developed dementia. Um, Greg O'Connell, one of the federal prosecutors who got the indictment against him in the Windows case, which is the one that put him away, uh, said that there was some pushback when, when they went in like 88, when they got a, a guy who flipped on the chin. Uh, that there was some pushback against doing this, that, like, you know, why are, why are we going after this guy? Um, you know, maybe he is crazy at this point. Is this the best use of our resources? Uh, and it turned out Greg was right, you know? Now, he came on... When did he... He became head of the family in 81. Right, yeah. Now, this is, this is going to sound a silly question. This is actually my own... This is a one-on-one personal interview now. <laughs> How do we actually become head of the family? Like, is it a vote? Do we... And I'm serious about it, because I was curious. I'm like, how do we become head of the family? Uh... Well, like, for example, when Gotti became head, there was a vote, but I think that was more of a show vote type of thing. Okay. Uh, I think in this case, Tony Salerno was, was the boss. He was old and he was sick, and uh, it was just kind of Giganti's time. And so he met with the rest of, uh, you know, the underboss and the consigliere, and uh, they made the decision that, you know, it was time for Vincent to move up. Uh, you know, he was a well-respected, high-ranking guy in the family. He'd been around a long time. Uh, well-liked, well-trusted, and uh, Salerno was in the hospital, and they just went to the hospital, and they, uh, you know, they said it's, it's time for a change, and Salerno didn't balk. As a matter of fact, and this is kind of the way that Chin operates, too, when Chin became head of the family, he didn't go out and, and brag about it and trumpet the fact that, you know, now he was running the Genovese crime family. He insisted that nobody say anything and that everyone believed that Tony Salerno was still the boss. That's my next note, Larry. That's my next note. Not everyone knew it. He might be the only person, I'm going to say not ever, but he didn't want to be known as the head of a family. You would think you would want to be known as the head of the family, but he had no interest in letting people know he was the head. Well, and and look, this is is how it works out, right? Four years later, uh, there's a huge indictment in the commission trial, and the heads of the five families are all indicted. Uh, except for the head of the Genovese family, <laughs> they indict Tony Salerno, who was at one point, but I mean, it, for four years, 81 to 85, when the indictment was handed down, he was running it. 
and and he just skated on that. Now I've read a lot of true crime books, mafia books, mob books. This book had a few twists in it that his brother is was and still is a Roman Catholic priest. Yeah, he's retired. Um, also a New York City councilman, and he ran for Congress once. Your book, people are going to read it. Obviously, if they're into the mob, they're into the mob. It starts off with this interview with the brother. You have to say because it was, it was pretty crazy. You described like. Tell us how, the, how you got the interview with the brother yeah. and what he say that he never said again because it was pretty, it's pretty chilling. Um, when I got the, the deal to write the book, uh, I don't know if obliged is the right word, but I, I felt that I needed to reach out to um, his family. And, you know, Father Gigante is a, a very well-known public figure and has been in New York since the late 60s. Yeah, he, never, he never left the South. He's one of the first, like, only priests. He wanted to stay in that local... Refused to leave the parish, yeah. Because uh, he wanted to develop a rapport with the community. He felt priests who bounce from parish to parish never get to know their parishioners. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he runs SEBCO, which is a development corporation in, in the South Bronx, building uh, housing for the underprivileged. So I reached out through SEBCO, where I got one of his nephews, and they put me in touch with Father Giganti, and he agreed to come and meet me. He lives down, he's back in the village. He lives in the village again. Okay. And so I met him in an Italian pastry shop down there for breakfast. And uh, he's a little reticent at first, like he wanted to know, well, why are you writing about my brother? And um, my argument was he's a, there's a certain time in New York, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, where his brother is a historical figure. And the things that went on are part of the history of New York, and I thought that story could be told in, in a way that people would, would want to read it. And uh, that, that seemed to convince him a little bit. He, uh, what a, wait, what a diplomatic answer, because his brother did have a footprint on New York. Because I think said, so, yeah. And write a mob book about But his brother definitely had a footprint on the history of New York mafia scene and the history of New York to begin with. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's really, you know... When's the last time you heard the name of the head of any crime family? He's kind of the last of the big New York City dons, mafia dons. He was the, he was the last one, you know. Um, but during the course of our back and forth, you know, Father Giganti was kind enough to tell me some uh, some stories about growing up. He told me the Chinzino story. Okay, and, is that uh, where you got it from? Where you knew? I had heard, like I said, different things, so I wasn't sure. But I figured he would know that one. Damn it, and, that's cool. Yeah, okay, he was very happy to tell me. But then, kind of. Uh, I should add, during the time that Vincent Giganti was uh, doing the Mental Insanity Act, Father Giganti was almost like his public spokesman because, of course, as as a guy who was mentally ill, the chin did not speak for himself in public. Uh, and he really was an ardent advocate that his brother was sick and that the government was pursuing him incorrectly and, uh, you know, this was all a mess and it shouldn't be happening. Um, but then kind of in the course of our breakfast, he just said, uh, I think if I can remember the quote, something along the lines of, look, was my brother the head of the Genovese crime family? Yes, he was. He was handpicked by Vito Genovese. And uh, it's funny because I remember this. I had my phone and I picked the phone up to make sure that the reporter was <laughs> of course, on. That's, you know? a, yeah. <laughs> that's a quote you need to have. Yeah. Well, it's one I want to have on tape. You of know course. what I mean? Yeah. So, but yeah, that was, uh, it was such a... It was such a good moment or interesting moment to me that I felt it was the way to start the book, you know? And now, he also admitted that he was, the whole thing was an act, too, the brother, right? He didn't quite go that far. Okay. But I mean, but the chin uh, in his second trial, 
uh, did have to admit that it was all an act, and he pleaded to uh, to going out of his way to deliberately mislead the physicians who said that he was uh, insane at the first trial. See, I, I would have went all like fanboy with the brother because like, I find these things cool. I find interviewing you is like super cool. Like <laughs> I read you, I know who you are. I just read your book, so it's like you kind of fanboy out. So yet you're meeting the head of a one of the biggest crime families in the world, has having breakfast with his brother. I. It was, it's kind of like a surreal feeling. There was now. some discussion that we might talk more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another brother who's alive and living up in Westchester County, and he, he said, Father Giganti said he wanted to check with him. And uh, I just never heard back from him. Okay. So I guess they made their decision. But I thought it was very generous of him to give me you know, 90 minutes like we did. And I think I mentioned in the book he picked up the tab. Yeah. So <laughs> for the cannoli. So it was all very good. Yeah. One question. And- Maybe you don't know the ac- actual answer. Was he more involved? And would, I don't want to discredit his name because he's... Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you think he was more involved maybe a little more than we knew in the criminal underworld or... Well, I mean, he he rubbed elbows with a lot of guys. You know what I mean? He was involved with uh, Morris Levy. The music and, guy. Yeah. yeah, who was a sort of famously corrupt music guy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he and Morris were very friendly. And he, he has a retirement house up in... Uh, up in the mountains here in New York on property that he bought from Morris Levy. So he definitely um, he rubbed elbows with these guys. Uh, I never heard anybody say that he was involved in organized crime. One FBI guy said when he was around, he was treated like a capo. Well, sure. He's, well, he's the head guy's brother. Exactly. So. But, uh, you know, I would say this. If... if the FBI or the U.S. Attorney thought they could get to Vincent Giganti through his brother, they would have done it. And there was never, you know, never anything like that. No federal indictment, no federal charge. They didn't bring him in really to try and squeeze him, you know? Now, you mentioned like the 80s and 90s New York mob. Like you, the paper, nothing sells. When you see something with mob, every, really, everyone grabs. I, I remember the, the job I have now, you say if you see police or mob on the front page, you're grabbing the paper because you want to read everything about it. And with the mob, I remember it was always Gotti, Gotti, Gotti. They were compl- they were very both very powerful. Right. What made Gotti afraid of him? Afraid of the chin? Well, I mean, the the, the chin is, a, I mean, the chin is not going to be going out, you know, at one o'clock in the morning to get a nightcap at some Upper East Side restaurant. You know what I mean? So I, I think that there's a couple things. One, to chin, it it was a secret society. You know, um, and to Gotti, it seemed like it was in some ways a road to, uh, to, to popularity. Um, Chin didn't need to be liked by anybody who wasn't a made member of the Genovese crime family. Um, you know, I was told that the, the guys on the street really liked him because, uh, you know, how the mob works, kicks up to the boss, street level, everybody has to kick up. And Giganti uh, would tell the guys, keep the money. You know what I mean? To him, uh, the prestige and the power of the job was enough. You know, I talked to Henry Hill before he died, and Henry had run into the village in like the early 70s before he was boss. And uh, Henry said the craziest thing about him is, you know, he had millions of dollars and he never went further than 10 miles away from West 4th Street. You know <laughs> what I mean? So, you know. Getting back to that, because this is going to sound like, because so many questions, as I'm reading the book, and once you, I open the book, I start reading it. And I Googled you, I wrote to you, and you wrote right back, like, oh, I'll do the show. What, I don't want to say happy, because that's like getting really like Dr. <laughs> Phil. But what, what was his thing? He just wanted to be the head? Because he had all this money, you said. 
he kind of did the whole crazy act, stayed within four blocks of West 4th, right. 10 blocks. He didn't really, I don't want to say do much, but there was no, it didn't seem happiness. Was he happy or did you get from interviewing people, like, did he enjoy it? Like, did he enjoy life? I don't. Well, I mean, he had uh, two wives and two families. We tell the two wives things, the same name. and it's Yeah, not- Olympia, right. <laughs> and the, the FBI called his wife Olympia 1 and his mistress Olympia 2, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, and he had relationships with both families right to the end, uh, which is very strange given kind of the social mores of Italian Catholics, Italian immigrant Catholics, you know what I mean? The church was very big. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the idea that he was able to get away with that shows that, uh, you know, he was given a pass on a lot of things that other guys wouldn't have, you know? Um, I, I think he was just, from, from what people say, he was just happy being the boss. He was, okay. you know, as his brother said, he was groomed for this position by Vito Genovese. And uh, when he took over, I mean, he was the boss, took over in 81, till he pleaded out in 2003. He was the boss. That's 22 years. I think Gotti, in contrast, was the boss for seven years before he went to prison. Um, you know, they had enough respect for him that uh, the guys in the street, that they, they let him run the family from prison. Wait, that was gonna, I was going to ask that. How does that... Because like, I have all these little notes. Let's, let's get to the prison thing. When you think of mafia, everyone gets arrested for murder, gambling, drugs. But he got in trouble for windows. Can you yeah, explain the whole yeah, windows? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's funny. Like, Remember, like I said, I'll get on... The same way everyone does. You read one thing and you go into like a, a million different right. things on the internet. So while I'm reading this book, I didn't know... I actually didn't know how he got arrested. Right. So I'm like, okay, obviously, they got him on a RICO Act or they got him on a gambling... Right. And then Windows. Explain how he got arrested for Windows. Uh, there was a, a very low-level mob guy named Pete Savino. Um, I say he's a low-level guy, but he was regarded as a very good earner within the, uh, the Genovese family. And uh, long story short, there was a drug deal. He was involved with some other guys. One guy points the finger at him. Fed U.S. attorney in Brooklyn brings him in and... Uh, they realized, like, you know, wow, this guy knows a lot. And basically what he was able to tell them was of this, uh, it, it sounds almost fantastic, but it's true, four of the five New York crime families had managed to lock down all the contracts pretty much to install new, uh, I guess, heat-saving windows, double-paned double, double uh, windows in all the city housing projects. And... Uh, I think the numbers, if I can remember correctly, there were $171 million in contracts handed out uh, for this window installation, and the, the mob consortium won $150 million. <laughs> um, and they were able to do this because they controlled uh, the union, the installing union. Uh, they were able to rig all the bidding. Uh, they put a surcharge of a dollar or $2 on every window, um, you know, tens of thousands of windows all over the city. Uh, they made companies that were not mobbed up who wanted a piece of the action pay them money and so this became this enormous money making operation Uh, Savino, the guy who came up with it because it was so successful and generated so much money eventually got access to Giganti and that's kind of how he exposed him but yeah, he was convicted of all these uh, racketeering charges um, all related to windows, you know, bribery, uh, rigging the bidding. Uh, now, he was tried at the trial on murder, but none of those stuck, which is kind of funny because 
that resulted in a much lesser sentence. And I was told he wound up getting 12 years. Mm -hmm. And I was told if he had gotten what they expected, 25 years, the Genovese family would have taken him down as boss because he would have been locked up for too long. But at 12 years, they thought, well, he could be out in seven, eight, uh, come back, and he'd still be able to run the family. So in an odd way, not being convicted of those crimes allowed him to get convicted the second time, which really did him in. How do you even run the family from, he ran the family, and now what, the money goes to his family, his two families? Well, uh, you know, there are people here who are running it. He had people who were running his orders back and forth. His son, Andrew, um, was uh, alleged to be one of them, and Andrew actually pleaded out uh, to, uh, to a federal charge on the same day that, that the chin uh, came into court and stood up and admitted it was, all, uh, it was all fake. And it was kind of funny. I shouldn't say funny. It was kind of interesting. Father was going to plead first, and the son was going to plead second. So the son is in the courtroom watching this. And, uh, you know, like nobody's seen Giganti speak in court. The whole first trial, he just sat, you know, shaking his leg and staring into space. Like zoned out. Yeah, like, like, yeah, like catatonic, yeah. exactly, yeah. And uh, there was like a little get-together with the lawyers after the plea is entered, and uh, what it was is he had asked if his son could come up. And uh, so Andrew was able to come up from the, well to from the courtroom audience into the well to courtroom and sit with the father for like 10 minutes. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, you know, like every head in the courtroom is straining to try and figure out what they're saying, you know, but, uh, you know, they were both on their way to prison, and uh, the judge gave father and son a chance to, uh, for like 10 minutes before they took the father away, so that was, uh, yeah, that was kind of an interesting moment. Speaking of the son, now, I, I hope I'm not wrong with this one, when John Gotti said, like, basically his son's taking over the business, yeah. was it the chin who said, like, wow, you're letting your son, like... Kind of like, why would you let your son into this? I think he said, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah. Like he yeah. wasn't happy. Like, why is your son even involved in this? Which is what made it so weird that he would have his son come in. See, that, that's, that's what I figured when I was reading it. I'm like, oh, that seems like kind of like a... It seems ironic that he said, I feel sorry your son's in it, but yet his son was in it. The chin I, son. Think, <clears throat> I think that was kind of desperate times, desperate measures. Um, you know, and there, that was the first time when the chin went to prison in Texas that... Uh, that he was ever caught on a on a wiretap. Um, I found this out. You, you might know this that all federal prison phone calls are recorded, yeah. uh, and so they we had, had we had CDs the other day at work. We were trying well, to listen. There you to. go. So, so they had they sent an FBI guy down, you know, to just pull, and of course they found all this stuff, like you know him very lucidly talking with his wife in New Jersey about his heart problems, like, you know, how many ejections per minute and his medication and this and that. Uh, him calling back to Greenwich Village on 9-11. See, that one was, that was the best one. Yeah. I think, not that it nailed him, but that proved, like, okay, he's sane enough. He's, yeah. he's calling up to make sure, like, hey, you guys good down there because right. the village is so close yeah. to it. Um, so that. And then, uh, you know, just some other calls where he sort of obliquely talked about mob business. You know what I mean? Uh, so they had all that, you know what I mean? Um, and I said, I actually asked an FBI agent, why would he do that if he knew that they were all being recorded? And he said, uh, he just thinks that, you know, if you're in a prison in Texas and you come from Greenwich Village and there's nobody around that you know that you would go crazy if you didn't call people and, and have a normal, 
lucid conversation, you know? The biggest fear is the unknown. He probably, he just needed to know. So forget yeah, about it. you know. Two more questions about the book. He seemed that he was kind of ahead of the game in everything, like with the crazy act. Right. Which, and the surveillance, because he was, not that people, people knew that stuff was bugged, but he seemed like overly paranoid. Everything was bugged. Like there was, I think it was Sammy the Bull. People were afraid to say just the word chin. Yeah, yeah. So he well, seemed like ahead of the game with all the surveillance. What And was he? He was way ahead of the game. I mean, uh, you know, Tony Corallo, the, the head of the Lucchese family, uh, was busted because they bugged his, his driver's Jaguar, <clears throat> you know. Uh, Gotti, of course, famously, they, they bugged the apartment above uh, the Ravenite Social Club. Um, you know, phone taps, uh, guys with wires, you know, he... That, that didn't happen to him. And it didn't happen to him for a year, for decades. You know, um, there was a sign hanging in uh, the Triangle, his social club down in the village, and it said, loose lips uh, sink ships, an old World War II thing. And uh, they apparently swept the place for bugs all the time. If he wanted to speak with somebody privately in the, uh, in the Triangle, he would bring them into the bathroom and turn on the faucet as, as loud as it could be, as high as it could go to, to cover up any kind of voices. Now, where exactly was the triangle? Sullivan Street, right across from the apartment where, um, well, where her, his mother lived until she died. It's just a few blocks away from where Father Giganti lives now. What would he think of the village right now? Oh, it's funny. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think exactly what it is. It's some sort of, the triangle is now some sort of high-end tea and coffee oh. shop. Yeah, I think it's in the book. But yeah, you know, you can go get a mocha latte where, where the chin once uh, played gin rummy and never lost, you know? Yeah, never, I love that. I never yeah. lost. First of all, thank you for taking all your time. I, I still a few more minutes. I'm not letting you leave yet. Oh, yeah, sure. No, thank you Do you think, me. and maybe this is me being kind of like old New York, if the chin's still around or if the mob was still heavy, does everything around it go hipster in New York City and Sullivan Street stay like Arthur Avenue is in the Bronx? Right, like, right. Do you think that's what it would have been? No $2,500 uh, studio rentals. Yeah, with. I, I, you know, I don't know. The, the real estate is just so valuable there. I mean, they probably uh, would have owned all of it. Yeah, you know, yeah right. <laughs> Maybe they would have bought up the property, yeah. But uh, no, I don't think they could have saved, uh, saved the village. Is the, is the mob now, it's not as prevalent ever. Obviously, it's not. Is it still even there to a certain degree? Well, there was just a big indictment uh, earlier this year in which, like, the big name in it um, was a guy from Philadelphia, and the New York crime families were sort of uh, almost an afterthought. Skinny Joey Merlino from Philadelphia, um, who was identified as the Philadelphia boss, but he lives in Florida. So that'll give you an idea of sort of how displaced they are. And we talked about the Windows case. You know, there's a time where the mafia ran the garbage carting industry. Uh, the mafia controlled a lot of the garment district, trucking, uh, Fulton Fish Market, mm -hmm. uh, like the windows, hundreds of millions of dollars. And these guys are running like small bookie operations in Yonkers. So I, and the other thing was there seemed to be a lot of interaction between the families that might not have existed 20, 30, 40 years like ago. Like no certain territories, like this right, is exactly. us. Right, okay. exactly. It just seemed like whoever was left was just trying to figure out their way. And if we had to work together and that was the way to do it, that's what we were going to do. So I think, yeah, to a large degree, the, the mob has kind of fallen on hard times. And with the history of people flipping and you know ratting each other out and people scared of jail and stuff and the easy ways you get arrested, you don't think it can ever come to the way it was with just a big, powerful person? I, I don't know. I mean, 
you know, you look at Giganti got convicted the first time in 97. That's almost 20 years ago. I mean, if I asked you to tell me the head of any of the crime families couldn't even give you a name then you know what i mean i would say peter got i couldn't even give you a name yeah peter Gotti. yeah yeah you know that's it though like and just because the name Gotti, if his name was exactly junior Gotti, i guess yes but um yeah i mean joe joe messino went around and went away in like the around the turn of the century and boston flipped uh so yeah i i mean even before all these guys started going away an fbi agent uh had told me at one point a long time ago that uh if you were like a high-level capo and you're making a lot of money, what was the benefit for you to become the boss? The FBI is going to be all over you. Uh, you know, you have to worry about everything. Are you being videotaped? Are you being surveilled? Uh, why, why do it? And and with racketeering, you know, you're looking at if you're convicted, forty years, right? You're going to get convicted about, of racketeering yeah. and racketeering conspiracy. They're two twenty-year bits. They're going to run one after the other. So what's the upside? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You have a good deal. You have your own crew. You're making good money. It used to be a position of prestige. Now it's it became a position of you know angst. You know you got to worry about everything every day. Did you enjoy writing the book? I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, it, it was uh, had to be done fast, but that's all right. Yeah, I did. Why fast? Um, I'd been pitching it around for a couple of years. And then I found this agent, Frank Wyman, who's a great guy. Uh, and he very quickly found a publisher for it. Um, and when we met with the publisher, uh, he was like, oh, we'd like to have this in by the end of the year. I think June, maybe, we met with the guy. Uh, so there was a very tight deadline on it, um, which was OK. I'd done most of the research already. I had all these FBI documents and his prison records and all that stuff. Uh, but of course, the kicker to the story is I rushed to get it done, and it didn't come out for like another seventeen months. <laughs> <laughs> no, anything writing the book shock you? Like, like I've had a lot of in- I've uh, Mark Bowden's been I've had a lot of authors on, right? And like I had Mark Bowden on when he was talking about the Killing Pablo book. We talked right, about Pablo right. Escobar book, and Harold Schechter just came on the serial killer author, yeah. and we're talking. I'm like, did one thing while you're doing this? Did you uncover whether it be about the chin or anyone else? Like shock you? Like holy crap, this is. I was really shocked when the when the priest. Uh, Did you see the brother thing. Yeah, that, it just really shocked me. That was the cool. I thought that was the coolest part of the book. Yeah. Like the it's too bad it went right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it went all downhill. No. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. A couple other things with with the book itself. I had a few personal notes. Writing for the Daily News. You cover the Olympics, right? I covered the Olympics when I worked for Associated Press. I went to nine Olympics. Oh, okay, because I asked yeah. you about Olympics because. John's sitting next to us, and we all we do is travel the world. We're going to Japan in like four weeks. We just no kidding. Yeah, we all we do is travel the world. Like every three or four months, we try to go. Our goal is to visit all 193 countries. Wow. What uh, if you don't mind talking a few more minutes? No, no. What do you like? What countries did you visit the most? Like not the most. What countries did you cover with the Olympics? Uh, I went to France, Mm -hmm. Norway. (laughs) Then I went to Atlanta. That doesn't. No, that does those. Ninety two, right, Atlanta? Yeah. Nagano, mm-hmm. Australia, okay. which is fantastic. Salt Lake City, 2004 Summer Olympics, Athens, yeah. And then the last one I went to was in Turin, Italy. Did you, you didn't go to uh, Sochi? Cause you wrote about Sochi, though, didn't you? didn't you? I did write something about Sochi, but no, I had moved to the Daily News at that point, so I didn't go. And there. they don't let you cover, go cover the Olympics? They, uh, they have a very strict policy of sending sports writers to cover sports. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to get into Who that. Who knew? Yeah. 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 Did you love covering the Olympics? Like, how cool is that? 
Uh, it was very busy at the AP because uh, because of the time difference. We were like writing all the time. Okay. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, it was great. I loved uh, Lillehammer. Mm -hmm. Beautiful place. Australia was fantastic. Uh, they were probably my two favorite places. Um, but yeah, it was all good. Very much so. And how about you have a next book coming up? I have you like five more minutes. I'm gonna keep you on. So I, I do have a next book coming up. It's another mob book. Okay. It's uh, it's a book about uh, a mobster from Philadelphia. His name is Ralph Natale. Uh, I'll just give you the quick version. He was a right hand man to Angelo Bruno, the docile Don who ran Philadelphia for a long time. He gets put away in jail. Uh, Angelo Bruno gets killed. And while he's locked up, he spends 17 years in prison plotting his return to avenge the death of Angelo Bruno and take control of the family, which at this point is now run by little Nicky Scarfo, the kind okay. of psychopathic Atlantic City guy. Okay. Uh, and so after all these years of waiting, uh, Ralphie comes out of prison. He indeed reclaims the family. Uh, he achieved his goal of real <laughs> and and uh, he was boss for less than four years before he got locked up and went back to prison <laughs> at which point he had had a deal when he went away the first time after Bruno got killed that his family would be taken care of by the uh, by the mob mm -hmm. and uh, as soon as he got locked up and it began Bruno was dead they said we're not paying you anymore so when he took over the second time he made a deal with Joey Merlino who we talked about before mm -hmm. he became his underboss well, no matter what happens, Joey, if I go to jail, you'll take care of my family. He goes to jail, and again, they stiff his family. So uh, at that point, he decides to testify against the guys in the Philadelphia mob. Uh, so that's kind of the arc of the book. Are, are you – I'm sorry, you're still finished. writing it? It'll okay, be, <laughs> it'll be out – yeah, it'll be out next February, February 2017. About doing the books, how do you get all your research? I know you – FBI documents. Do yeah, you ever yeah. go down there and interview these people, like sit down? For, for the second book, the Ralph Natale book, I would go down every Monday to, um, to sit with them. It would just be the two of us at a table. And uh, we would eat, and he would tell me stories. And uh, now, where, where was this? I, I can't tell okay, you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you. So you'd meet him? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you might ask that. I was thinking, I, I can't tell him. Um, but yeah, it was funny because the first time I went down to meet him, uh, you know, like he's he's very casual about like life in the mob, like you know, to tell you a story about you know, I, I think this is a quote, like you know, I, I shot a guy three times in the head, and you know, I'm I'm so good at it, there's only one hole. No, <laughs> you know, it's like holy shit. So no, you, you, can curse, you can curse, you can curse, you can curse, you can curse. Um, but. After the first week, uh, when we sat down, he was telling me these kind of stories. I had a problem with my car. So I called down, and I was like, uh, you know, hey, Ralph, uh, I think uh, one of the tires was bad. So I called down. I'm like, look, I can't come down this week, and, uh, you know, I'll call you. We'll set up next week. And he called the, uh, my agent, who was kind of the go-between, and he was like, uh, I knew he wouldn't be back. He was scared by the no. stuff he heard. <laughs> So when it, when it was all done after we had finished up, you know, I kind of teased him a little bit about that. that, that that's actually a really good story. Yeah. I, do you just sit back with these stories when, when they talk and just, like, kind of go into, I don't want to say fan, but, like, just sit back and, like, you want to hear them just talk? or Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure the same thing was true with uh, 
you know, Giganti's brother, Father Louie, I, I would have loved to have sit down and talk to the guy for hours, you know. Um, just, just kind of the institutional memory of old New York and... Uh, Nostalgic. Yeah, like an insight into a different world, you know what I mean? Um, and, and all these guys have it. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, Natal, Ralph, Ralphie Natalie just doesn't see the world the way you or I would see the world, you know. And to his credit, I would say he's unapologetic about it, you know. Uh, you, you, you just nailed how I wanted to end it. They don't see the world like we do, like... Um, the chin lived in the village. They in those ten blocks area was worth whatever he could have done whatever he wanted in the world, and yet John, and I, my friend Will, just came. We're like, all right, we have a thousand dollars. All right, we're gonna go to Japan and Korea. <laughs> hey, we have like enough money to squeeze out. Like all I want to do is travel, and, and they were just content with staying. It's so weird how just two different lives. Like they're just content yeah. with their small familiarity. I like to expand and be like, hey, I want to go to a country where we don't know one word that they're speaking and ex right. learn that, and they want to stay in the same group the same restaurant the same and I well, was within within his world uh he was the number one guy and and that was good enough for him you know last two personal questions for you have you ever gotten this might sound silly like old school but do you ever get like death threats or people writing to you like don't write about this or ever nervous are you ever nervous about writing anything i'm never nervous but you know you've seen the election right yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's been a lot of emails about that oh do you do well I mean the thing is now you know with everything online it's so easy I, to I say everything online like this just happened but now you know you just click on my byline and you get my email so you know somebody sees some Trump story like the one over the weekend with the porn queen you yeah. know what I mean and all of a sudden and it the other thing is of course everybody interacts so They'll see one person write something and exactly. they piggyback like on. Exactly. Like it'll go up on some website. Larry McShane at the Daily News wrote, da, 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 and then it's like, you know, da, 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 da. so. The last thing I have, and this is like, I always ask every athlete who comes on my show. I'm no athlete. I'll tell you that, Mike. We look like athletes, though. <laughs> but every, no, really, I always ask the same question. I'm not going to ask you. I don't know if you have the answer. But I always say if we're out at a bar or something and you want to impress somebody, who's the coolest person in your phone that you can, do you have a cool person like, hey, we have answers like, we've heard answers like, OJ, someone had an OJ in there. Seriously? Josh Booty from LSU, played for the Marlins, had OJ's phone, like, phone number. I think he saved a text message. So people have the craziest answers. Jay-Z, this one. Anyone? Here's my answer. Frank Serpico. That's actually, that's a really good answer, though. See? That's not a bad one. Right? So if you I text him, he would write back to you. That's because that's a good answer. Yeah. Frank Serpico. That's a really good answer. All right. I'm glad I... Yeah. <laughs> You feel that ever and last thing we're gonna end with this. Have you ever been on the train or anything and ever seen anyone reading either your book or your articles? Uh, uh articles, yes. Uh, not the book, although somebody sent me a picture of a guy reading the book in a parking lot outside of Barnes and Noble, which was kind of funny. That's that's cool because I always uh Bill Simmons had Tony Kornheiser on, and Tony Kornheiser said he used to in, in Washington you should take the train and he used to see when people were reading his article, like, are they gonna skip my article? They're gonna read it. That's pretty cool. So you <laughs> Well, Larry McShane, describe your book one more time when I put it out there. And Yeah, Chin, The Life and Crimes of Vincent Giganti. It's a, a biography of the former head of the Genovese crime family um, from his days in Greenwich Village until his death in prison. And your Twitter name or anyone wants to follow you or send you evil? L. McShane, N-Y-D-N. That's the Twitter feed or just uh, L. McShane at nydailynews.com. Larry, it was an absolute pleasure. I was oh, really, God, really so excited to have fun. you on, man. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and subscribe at Mike Sappho.